Welcome back to Thoughts on Walks. This is episode number six. I think I'm going to title this the episode that almost didn't happen. <laughs> or maybe the episode that happened on the third or fourth try is more like it. So as I went out on my walk today, um, I was uh, talking along recording the episode and explaining that uh, how it's a completely different day than it was on uh, episode five which was sunny and bright, and um, it was uh, warm. And I, if I recall, there was even some some uh, folks on the street who, you know, casually said hello, great day, beautiful day, and what have you. We had a little conversation back and forth. And um, uh, then uh, I, I wanted to walk yesterday to kind of continue that, but it was a completely different day. It was, it warmed up just a little bit, but it was that like 33, 34 degrees, just sleeting and then raining most of the day, and it warmed up even more. And uh, it was just uh, not the day to be out on a walk. And uh, I had picked up some lumber to work on a project in our basement. And um, so we have this separate entrance to the basement from outside. And I wanted to make like some lockers and a mudroom down there. So sometimes when you come in from shoveling the driveway or you're hauling the skis or whatever back into the house, you don't have to bring them up into the house and then into the basement. You can take them through that basement door, down into the basement mudroom, put that stuff away, take off your wet or snowy clothes, uh, hang them up down there, and then just walk upstairs up into the house. And so I've been wanting to do that. Uh, and I finally started it yesterday. I've uh, f- been designing it as we go for over the past uh, year or so, thinking about how we're going to use that. And and that's one of the things that I like to do in design. Um, I think I mentioned that I designed our house that we live in now, and we, we built it, and um, uh, it's really fitted towards how we live. And I think I need to have an entire show sometime for that. Uh, but uh, I was explaining that this morning and talking about the project and, and how um, I like with uh, when a project, uh, when things just kind of reveal themselves and you have to sometimes leave things undone, um, trust that your future self will be able to, uh, to make that, to execute that design or ideas that you have. Uh, whether, you, whether or not you know how to do that now, trust your future self to be able to do that. And um, I was explaining that, and, uh, and then I went into um, the, kind of the crux of what I wanted to discuss today on this episode. And I've had, had a couple of different things. First of all, the microphone attachment into my iPhone, I'm just using like a microphone into an iPhone to record this. And uh, that popped out at one point. And then it got so cold that my iPhone completely froze. I don't know if you've uh, ever had this, uh, this issue before when it gets too cold outside um, or it shows like you're running out of battery even though you know it's fully charged and then it just shuts down. Well, my, that's what my phone did. So uh, I was a ways into this uh, with the recording going and I don't think it all saved. So my thoughts on walks today is actually from the uh, comfort of my living room couch, which is not how I envision this, but... I think I kind of owe you a wrap-up to that whole Albert Hubbard story. Um, I didn't. I certainly didn't intend for this podcast to be a um, a four-episode uh, history lesson, 
but uh, it, it's in such an interesting story. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to not constrain it too much, and I just enjoy my, uh, being able to, as I walk around, to be able to um, kind of recount my uh, recalling of history and, and that story to you as I walk around in the places where it actually happened. And um, but I, I did want to round out that uh, that one part that I kept mentioning was that there was a bit of a cloud hanging over Albert Hubbard and his story. And it obviously has to do with uh, his two wives. Uh, the first wife was Bertha and the second wife was Alice. And the thing about Albert Hubbard was he always surrounded himself with um, educated and strong women. And, um, and it, was, it was no different with uh, his wives, uh, Bertha and Alice. And uh, I told you the story about how... Uh, uh, Albert met Bertha through his sisters. Um, Bertha attended uh, the, the normal school out in uh, Illinois with um, with Albert Hubbard's sisters, and so that's how they were introduced. And immediately, as soon as they were married, she joined Albert Hubbard here in uh, in Buffalo, and um, as he was working for the Larkin Soap Company. And and if this is the first time you've listened into the episode, you really need to listen to. I think it's episode three, four, and five, uh, for the beginning part of the story or else this may not make any sense at all. Um, so, um, so there's Albert Hubbard of the Roycroft, his wife, Bertha, and the year is, uh, when they moved to East Aurora, I think it was about 1884. And so Bertha and Albert would attend, uh, lectures at the, to the local Lyceum circuit and the Lyceum was of course this was you know pre-internet pre-television pre-radio uh, uh for entertainment and for some intellectual stimulation there was a lyceum circuit which was kind of like a mastermind group of the day uh where people would uh would meet and uh it was uh, a, a sharing of lectures on different, uh, you know, various topics. And Albert was very active in the movement. Um, even though he lacked that formal education that Bertha had, he was a voracious reader and he was always looking to improve. He was kind of, and this is another thing that I identify with with him, was he was kind of a self-development junkie and I'm I'm a bit the same way, even though I'm not sure sometimes what part I'm trying to develop. But uh, th that's what he was like. He likes the sharing of information and, and listening to speeches and, and speaking and so forth. And the Lyceum movement was was big. And, and really one of the organizations within the Lyceum movement, if you think of Lyceum as kind of a, an umbrella term, uh, one of the movements in that Lyceum movement was um, the Chautauqua movement. And... Uh, and locally, we had a Chautauqua literary and scientific circle. And this Chautauqua movement uh, started just south of here, maybe a 45-minute drive down at Chautauqua Lake. And um, it was really the, the TED Talk of its day. Uh, people uh, would come to Chautauqua to hear famous people speak, to give opinions, hear thought leaders present their thoughts, and so forth. So again, very much like the TED Talk of its day. Um, and the Chautauqua Movement, uh, the Chautauqua Institute is still very popular. And uh, if, if you um, look that up on the internet, oh, on uh, even on, there's probably some videos on YouTube about uh, Chautauqua speeches and, and so forth. And like, uh, so if Chautau the Chautauqua Movement was like uh, TED, 
um, the local, they had local Chautauquas in little towns, which is kind of like a TEDx is today. So Chautauqua and the Lyceum movement, uh, each one of, they had local organizations where people would meet, they'd listen to lectures, they'd give lectures, and different speakers who were on the Lyceum circuits would, would come and they would give their speeches. So, uh, you know, there was probably people who gave the same speech a thousand times as they would go from Lyceums and from town to town. So anyway, this is uh, uh, Bertha and Albert would go to the um, the local Chautauqua movement here, the East Aurora uh, Chautauqua Literary Literary and Scientific Circle, and um, and that's actually where Albert and Alice met as well. Um, Alice was a local teacher. She was from the town uh, or little village next to East Aurora called Wales. That's where she was born and raised. She went to school at the Aurora Academy. Uh, here in East Aurora, um, and she became a teacher. And since she was a single teacher, um, she needed a place to live. The, they just single teacher, female teachers just didn't live alone. So she had a roommate, and they they shared a place together. And uh, but that roommate was leaving to marry, as luck would have it, uh, a friend of. Uh, Albert Hubbard, actually his next door neighbor, uh, who's a doctor and a friend of his. And so uh, that left Alice without a place to live. Well, Bertha Hubbard, Albert's wife, first wife, was on the school board. She may have even been the president of the school board. I'm not exactly sure. But it kind of fell to her to make sure that these single teachers had a respectable place to live and and because like, single women just weren't allowed to live by themselves somewhere. And so that kind of fell to her. And so what happened was Alice came to board in the Hubbard's house. So, um, so here we have Albert and Bertha married. Alice was boarding with them. And, of course, Albert and Bertha had their kids there as well. Well, like I said, uh, Albert Hubbard liked to surround himself with educated and strong women. And, you know, there was lots of chats around the, the table and around the fire. And Alice was just someone who intellectually stimulated him uh, just beyond his wildest dreams. And um, they got very, very close. And eventually that turned into an affair. And... Uh, I think it became obvious to Bertha at a certain point, and Bertha insisted that Alice uh, leave. So uh, Alice moves away from East Aurora to Boston, and she attends the. Um, she went to the Emerson School of Oratory, and uh, this is not to be confused with Ralph Waldo Emerson. This is, was a school founded by um, Charles Wesley Emerson, who. Uh, they're distant relatives, and ironically, they were both Unitarian ministers in Boston at the time um, in their day. But uh, they were distantly related, but they, um, but Emerson School of Oratory was not Ralph Waldo Emerson. But this is where Alice was attending. Um, and at one point in time, Albert goes to see Alice there and kind of rekindles things, they start writing again. And over the next couple of years, while she's uh, going to uh, school there, um, 
they were they were wrote back and forth. And um, this is that time frame where Albert decides that he is going to become a writer. He leaves the Larkin Company. He cashes in his shares in the Larkin Company, so he had enough money to cover things. Uh, this is where also where he decides to go to school at Harvard. Well, Harvard is uh, conveniently close to Alice down the road in Boston there. at uh, uh, But she ends up leaving there and going to uh, Potsdam College. And so, as I mentioned, Albert only stayed at Harvard for that uh, one semester. Um, but over the holiday season of uh, 1893 to 1894, it's like Christmas, New Year's, 1893, 1894, Albert finds an excuse to visit the Potsdam area where he uh, meets up with Alice. Long story short, she becomes pregnant. And uh, uh, now, of course, she and Albert didn't know it at the time that he was going on with his life. He'd already left Larkin. This is when he visits Europe to do uh, research for what became his uh, series of books, The Little Journeys. Uh, while he's over in England, Alice writes to him and, uh, and tells him that, uh, that she's pregnant. And uh, of course, uh, you know, a single woman pregnant, uh, at teaching at school at the time, and she's able to hide her pregnancy under flowing clothes. So nobody knew she was pregnant and uh, she just kind of kept that quiet, but she, she did write off to Albert, who was in England, and let him know. And, of course, Albert does what any self-reliant man would do, um, I guess freaks out in a way. But uh, then he studied his copy of uh, the Grey's Anatomy that his father had given him. Remember, his father was a country doctor and had hopes of Albert following in his footsteps. So Albert studies his Grey's Anatomy book. Um, and then, of course, everything he could get his hands on in England about uh, midwifery to be, a, to be a midwife, and he returns to the States. And on the 16th of uh, September of 19, or 1884, I guess it would be, uh, he personally delivers their daughter, Miriam, is what they named her himself. So, uh, you know, Albert and Alice, having this affair, have this daughter, Miriam, out of wedlock, and so sadly, this whole time, he's, he's leading this double life. He's, he's still married to Bertha, the, you know, the woman who initially kind of completed him socially when he was a salesman, and he had a family and kids with her. Uh, they started the Roycroft, and she was very involved in the Roycroft. She, she was in charge of the um, uh, setting up the illumination of the books, so she would teach the girls, uh, the local farm girls and so forth, how to hand illuminate the books, to uh, painting of China. She ran the business affairs while he was uh, away. Um, so she was actively involved in the Roycroft, and yet this whole time he was having an affair and eventually had a child with Alice, who really he, he thought was the woman who completed him and was his true soulmate. Um, and so he's, he's got one foot in each world, and so life must have been a little bit crazy for all involved at that time. And uh, so after Miriam was born, of course, they cannot deal with the stigma of Alice being a, a, a single um, uh, having a child out of, out of wedlock that would just ruin her. She was, so she was initially raised by Alice's sister and brother-in-law here in Buffalo. 
And um, she thought, uh, Miriam thought that Alice was her aunt, not her mother. And she thought that uh, her her true aunt and uncle were her mother and father. And so this went on for a couple of years and until in uh, 1901, uh, Miriam's, uh, the the couple who raised Miriam as their, as their parents, which would be Alice's sister and brother-in-law, um, sued Albert Hubbard for back child support. I, I really don't know how much of this Albert knew was going to happen or if anything, or if Alice knew uh, if anything was going to happen. But the long and short of it is in 1901, the scandal became public. And so we've talked about how in 1899, he uh, authored that message to Garcia that went viral. And he, I mean, he just shot into fame. And uh, so this was at the height of his fame where this came out and everybody thought it would ruin him. And, you know, it just didn't. That's something that, that Albert Hubbard always said that, uh, um, you know, never make excuses. Uh, your, your, your friends, uh, your friends don't need it. And, and, uh, and the people who aren't your friends won't believe you anyway. Uh, so it just one he just dealt with it and in um 19 so the scandal came out in 1901 1902 uh when it became really public bertha retained some attorneys now she she still loved albert and um but she probably had no choice once it became public to divorce him and so uh had to go forward with it with the divorce uh she probably i'm just speculating but she probably would have just handled it within the family at the, if it wasn't public, but that wasn't the case. So uh, in, in January of 1904, the divorce became final. And uh, I think it was like the 11th of January, the divorce was final. And six days later, within the week, Albert and Alice were, were married. So that was really the, the height of the scandal. And then, um, and then Alice really just filled in uh, where where Bertha what Bertha was doing there at the Roycroft and and I had mentioned that she was a very astute businesswoman in her own right. Um, Albert Hubbard still at the height of his fame. It it did not detract uh, as seriously as anybody expected it to. Um, he was still very active in the vaudeville circuit and uh, and he spoke at lyceums and and uh, he uh, he made the circuits and and uh, and while he was out on the vaudeville circuit. Uh, Alice would run the show at uh, at the Roycroft, and she she tore down Albert and Bertha's house and made that as part of the inn, and um, and and it reached new heights. Really, the Roycroft uh, post scandal reached uh, new heights, and I had mentioned that they they uh, they were sailing on the ship, the Lusitania, and uh, on their way to. Uh, visit uh, Europe in uh, 1915 when uh, they were torpedoed by the Germans. And uh, I mentioned that in the last episode. But I I did uh, do a little clipping. I'm going to kind of paraphrase from a clipping that uh, talks about their last minutes. I said that they kind of joined arm in arm and, and uh, after the ship was torpedoed and just went down with the ship. But I, I found this um, this clip interesting. So I'm gonna, what I'm reading here is a paraphrase of that. And this is from the Lusitania uh, website. And it starts out, Throughout the voyage, Albert was interviewed by Canadian reporter 
Ernest Cowper, with Alice sitting in on their interviews. As Cowper was writing for the Toronto publication Jack Canuck, Albert often called Cowper Jack. On Friday, the 7th of May, Albert and Alice Hubbard were chatting with Charles Laureate. Earlier in the voyage, Albert Hubbard had lent Charles a copy of Who Lifted the Lid Off of Hell? And just as a note, that was a book that, uh, an article that uh, um, Albert Hubbard had had written in regards to what was going on in Europe uh, and the, the, the flames that were sparking uh, pre-World War One, And Albert asked uh, uh, Laureate, uh, did you, do you really think I'll be a welcome visitor in Germany? Because, again, he said he was going to visit the Kaiser to talk some sense and to, him to hopefully preclude World War I. Well, Hubbard had barely finished speaking when they felt a muffled impact and the ship trembled for a moment under the force of the blow. They turned to see where the sound was coming from and saw, uh, saw smoke and cinders flying up in the air on the starboard side, and then a second explosion soon followed. Lariat suggested to the Hubbards that they go back to their cabin and retrieve their life belts. To Lariat's surprise, the Hubbards did nothing. Albert stayed by the rail, affectionately holding his arm around his wife's waist. Stay here if you wish, Lariat told them. I'll fetch some life jackets for you. Lariat went below to fetch life belts for the Hubbards and himself, but when he came back, he found that the Hubbards were gone. Lariat searched for the couple over a dozen times and could not believe that they had just vanished into thin air. Archie Donald saw the Hubbards refuse a place in the lifeboats. Albert Hubbard remarked, What is to be is to be. Ernest Cowper passed Albert and Alice, and Albert said, Well, Jack, they have got us. They are a damn sight worse than I ever thought they were. Cowper asked, What are you going to do? Albert shook his head. And Alice just smiled and replied, there does not seem to be anything to do. Cowper was then taken by surprise when he saw Albert and Alice retreat into a room on the boat deck and close the door behind him. Cowper surmised that the Hubbards planned to die together and did not want to be parted in the water. In his writings, Albert had once philosophized, we are here now, someday we shall go, and when we go, we would like to go gracefully. And um, so that's the end of that quote. And it sounds like they did just that. Um, what I have found interesting in researching some of uh, Hubbard's talks is at least on three occasions, he had written something in the, along the lines of uh, the Irish Sea is not yet full and we may find our fate there. And it, But it was like almost like um, on numerous occasions he had premonitions that this is how he was going to die. Now, I guess when you look back and connect those dots, maybe it seems a bit ominous, but I... Um, but that's how people traveled. Travel was dangerous in those days. I don't know if it's just um, when we look at it through our lens today that it seems, uh, you know, that that it was prescient, that he knew somehow he was going to die then. But, you know, it's Albert Hubbard. You just never know with him. <laughs> but um, it sounds like they did uh, die arm in arm. And uh, through the whole scandal, he was convinced that Alice was his soulmate. And, uh, and it look, sounds like that may have actually been the case. So I think I will leave you with that. Uh, I look forward to our next time out on a walk. Hopefully my technology uh, is under uh, under control a bit more. I'm, I may uh, have another look at using sometime, uh, some other type of handheld voice recorder instead of my iPhone if it's going to be freezing up on me like this. But uh, uh, I will leave you with, with that and I thank you for joining me. 
And uh, again, share this uh, podcast with uh, friends if you think they would get something out of it. Uh, in the podcast apps, usually whatever app you use, you can use a share link and you can share it with them uh, through that or send them to Thoughts on Walks for this episode. It would be thoughtsonwalks.com slash 006. And if you just send them to thoughtsonwalks.com, there's all the different ways that they can subscribe to the show, whether it's through uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Stitcher or what have you. Uh, All of those are located right there. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to me. I I know that um, you should be very careful on uh, who you uh, let into your life and how much time you allot them. But if you happen to be out on a walk and, and uh, you like this format, uh, I certainly appreciate it. And I look forward to uh, talking with you again next time in the next episode. Thanks a lot and have a great day.